Thanks for pressing play. And welcome to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. We are the Real Dialogue Podcast, or some people call us an oddcast, for business leaders and category designers with a different mind. We've been downloaded millions of times in 190 countries, and we've won a bunch of very impressive Super Ding Dong Awards. <laughs> and that's because what you're about to hear is a real dialogue with a real person making a real difference in our world. And on this podcast, we feature people from millionaires, billionaires, world leaders, uh, Navy SEAL commanders, globally recognized authors, legendary thinkers and professors, anti-terrorism strategists, real estate tycoons, legendary artists, fierce venture capitalists and Hall of Fame athletes, and of course, category-creating entrepreneurs, all of whom are following their different and uh, inspire us to follow our different. Now, on this episode... Think pricing is a dialogue not for you? Think pricing is some sort of a nitnorky finance or product management thing? Think again. What if price, what if pricing is a superpower? What if you could make a material increase in your revenue, profit, and market cap with just a 1% increase in pricing? It's possible that pricing strategy is one of the most underused power levers in business. Our guest today is the no-bullshit Obi-Wan Kenobi of pricing. His name is uh, Dr. Rafi Mohammed, And Rafi has written over 90 articles on innovative pricing strategies for the Grand Dame, the Harvard Business Review herself. He is the author of The 1% Windfall, How Successful Companies Use Price to Profit and Grow, and The Art of Pricing. As well, he has got a, a brand new HBR article out called Expand Your Pricing Paradigm. And there'll be links to uh, his new HBR article as well as his books in the show notes for this episode. What I can tell you is um, when the smartest people in business want to work strategically on pricing, they go to Rafi. This is a very, very valuable episode that could be a demarcation point for you personally and your business overall. There are people in the world who would pay 25K to have lunch with Ravi, and you're about to get it for free. Now, my friends at Lomi are the makers of the most legendary new kitchen appliance in about a decade. You see, Lomi is the world's first smart home composter, and Lomi makes food waste a thing of the past. Lomi turns food waste into some of the most nutrient-dense magic dirt in the world. In just a few hours, unlike traditional composting that takes months, if you think that dragging dirty, wet, dripping, disgusting bags of uh, food out to your garbage bin is gross, and you want to transform your kitchen from a waste-creating, environmental-hurting dumpster into a magic dirt factory, visit Lomi.com. That's L-O-M-I.com. Now... As Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. I've been so looking forward to this, and as fate would have it, over the last three or four weeks, two CEOs, entrepreneur CEOs, that I know and work with have come forward and asked pretty meaningful questions about pricing. Uh, one's okay. a consumer, uh, a direct to consumer play, and they're thinking about increasing the price by, uh, I don't know about as a percentage, but maybe say 15 to 20%, something like that. 
And then uh, the other is an enterprise software CEO. And, and it's an insane discussion, which I am helping to kind of nudge along. And you're going to tell me if I'm giving bad advice, hopefully. Okay. But I'm being outrageous with them and saying, hey, what if we doubled our price? Right. Because of the argument that I think we want, we want to make, which is uh, price is a function of value. And if you ask the question, it, one of my favorite questions, and I, 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 want, I want you to coach me on all of this today, is, is this a fair exchange of value? Fair enough. And so in both cases, the direct-to-consumer CEO entrepreneur and the enterprise B2B CEO are really saying the same thing, which is, hmm, it's interesting that everything our customers tell us leads me to believe we should we are leaving value on the table. That is to say, the uh, my old friend Jay Larson, a legendary chief revenue officer uh, who became a CEO, used to say, "What's the give to get?" Mm-hmm. So, how do we start to figure this out? You are the you are the Sultan, the man, <laughs> uh, the myth, the legend, the Obi Wan Kenobi. If if in these two cases, a B two C and a B two B. What would be the conversation you would want to have with these CEOs to get to an outcome that you would think would be powerful? Well, first, you touch on something very important. So first of all, most companies don't think about this value. And I'd say 80 plus percent of companies pricing is cost plus. So whatever our cost up is, we multiply it by, say, 104 percent, and that's our price. So it's very easy to do. But unfortunately, it doesn't comport in any way with how consumers think about pricing. So, you know, for your big uh, Super Bowl party that's coming up, and if you go to Best Buy and you're looking at a 70-inch Samsung TV, I doubt you would go into Samsung and say, think to yourself, the most I'm willing to pay for this television is 104% of how much it costs, I think it costs to manufacture in Korea or wherever it's being uh, manufactured. So... The very premise of most companies, the way they set about price, is just wrong, okay? Now, what you're hitting on is right on target. Pricing is about capturing value. So a little example I have of that that sort of illustrates the story is street vendors in the middle of Central Park. The minute that it looks like it's going to rain, many street vendors double the price of their umbrellas. Well, and I've also noticed they show up out of nowhere, like, they weren't there. And I've been, I, I've been there many times where this happens. I've been, I can remember being in Soho, downtown. It, it doesn't matter where you are. It starts raining and 100,000 people start showing, show up. And they all start do, doing the same thing, which is screaming, umbrella, 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 umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but think about that. The doubling of price has three important things, uh, components of pricing. First of all, it shows that price really doesn't have a correlation with cost. Their cost didn't go up. The second point is price is all about the customer's next best alternative. What is the customer's next best alternative? So if I'm in the middle of Central Park, I can hightail it to a local CBS, six or seven blocks, hope I didn't get right on and buy an umbrella, or I can have the convenience of it right now. And the third and most important point of that very simple story is pricing is all about thinking like a customer. How's your customer thinking? So let's go to the software example. The simplest way how how your CEO friend should be thinking about it is like, really, what is the customer's next best alternative to using us? Okay, am I a commodity? If I'm exactly the same 
as a customer's best alternative. I'm a commodity. I have no control over my price. I have to price what everyone else does. But there are very few commodities in life. So my hunch is that there's a, there's a sort of unique value that that software is offering. And the notion is you should be able to look to a customer straight in the eye and say, look, I get it that you got alternatives. You're looking at them. That's great. But we offer you a great value because here's what's unique about us. And you're getting a great benefit out of it. And we're only charging X. And so the notion is, is that we're giving you a lot of value and we're going to capture part of that value or a lot of that value, but you're still ahead compared to the next best alternative. And most companies, I guarantee you, do not think like this. Well, listen, um, I've been doing this for 35 years and I haven't talked to most companies in the world, of course, but certainly a lot of them. Uh, and certainly a lot in the tech uh, Silicon Valley startup world. And of course, many, many customers to whom we sell, right? CIOs of major corporations and CEOs of major corporations and the like. And in my experience, you are a thousand percent right. This is not how they think. And in the B2B tech world anyway, a lot of how they think is what does everybody else charge? Yeah. And I've heard that too. I often hear what is there? We're going to charge what everyone else charges. And then I'll ask, well, are you better than the competition? And oftentimes they'll be like, well, of course we're better. Then why aren't you highlighting that unique value? And why aren't you charging that? So out of this discussion is really important. Most companies cannot, cannot highlight what their unique value is. If I ask a company, well, what makes you unique compared to your competitors? They'll say like, oh, we're better. Well, how are you better? I need you to clearly articulate this value. And I'm telling you time and time again, I've dealt with a lot of companies that cannot simply articulate why we're better than the customer's next best alternative. But here's also the beauty of pricing. Even if you're not as good as the next best alternative, price can come in to save the day. And you can sort of look at customer in the eye and say, look, I, I get that I don't have all the bells and whistles of this, of this alternative that you're looking at. But is it really worth the 40% premium that they're charging over what I am? And I often tell people that if consumers always want the best, we'd all be driving Rolls Royces. So, and a great example is in Boston, there's a lot of bus service between Boston and New York. At the high end, there's something called the limo liner. And that's, you know, sort of call it $100 one way. You know, nice buses, you know, attendant and free sodas. And, but on the other end of the spectrum, there are a lot of very low budget bus lines. In fact, one in fact was rated by the Department of Transportation to be in the bottom 5% of all motor carriers in the United States in terms of safety. But they're charging $15 to $25. And their value proposition is like, look, I get that we aren't as great as the limo liner, but we're going to get you to New York quickly and you know, hopefully safely. And why would you pay such a premium when we're charging such a fraction? So value can go both ways. So value is really about, you know, one, you could say, look, we've got all this extra value and we're charging a premium. I'll say, look, we don't have as much value, but we're giving you a much bigger discount and you can make a decision. Now, this is the question that I have been waiting, praying to ask you for a very, very long time. And so if you say to charge a premium price, you have to show highly differentiated value. Okay. Because you taught me this, and when I swear to God, Rafi, when you taught me this, it was one of the simplest, biggest unlocks. And I thought, why did I never think of that? Because you said, and you said it today, 
Price is all about the next best alternative. Uh-huh. Okay, so here's the dot I'd like to play with with you, the dots to connect. Okay. Category design and pricing. If I'm claiming to be a new category or a redefined category in a meaningful way, you know, I'm going from wireless phone to smartphone, BlackBerry to iPhone by way of example. What you're doing by, by designing the category or redesigning the category, however you want to think about it, is you're trying to create radical differentiation. And of course, there's lots of ways to differentiate. There's technology and there's feature set and there's distribution and there's a million different right Joe Pine experience. So there's lots of ways to differentiate. However, if I wear my Rafi lens for a second, I go, okay, it's all about the next best alternative in the customer consumer's mind. And that means they're doing a category comparison of some sense of of what's inside the category that they perceive and what's adjacent to the category, right? So for example, if I need to dig a hole, well, I probably think I need a shovel, right? That's smart, okay. But if you've ever dug a hole, you know there's more than one shovel and you probably want at least one spade to get the party started and and on and on. And all of a sudden, you know, you need five different subcategories of it because there's this sort of mental hierarchy of value and use case that gets created in our mind. So I'm, I'm going somewhere on this magical mystery tour, I promise. <laughs> and so like in our book, Snow Leopard, we said the subtitle of the book is uh, how legendary writers become a category of one. And so here's my question. Okay. What in your mind is the connection between pricing and category design, especially sitting inside of this giant, aha, you gifted me, around next best alternative? Well, I think I think I would go back to the next, next best alternative. So even if it is a category changer, like you were talking about shovels, first of all, it's important to articulate the value. I didn't know I might need four or five different shovels or different types of tools. So it's important to communicate to the customer that this is radical because you need this and I'm offering this. And I think that no matter, even if you're busting into a new category, you can build a case to a consumer about what the value is. So even going from cell phone to smartphone, I could look you in the eye and say, look, we have all these different features. You know, you can uh, use apps and the internet, and you can start to put numbers to that. And so so I think you even in a, in a new category, you can base a price off of what the customer's alternative would have been, which is an old category, plus you know, the extra work they'd have to do. Does that make sense? Amen. Hallelujah, brother. And so part of the value of category design is if we can create enough perceived radical differentiation, it decreases in the mind of the customer the number of next best alternatives. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so if you go back to either of these company examples I gave you off the top, in one case, the B2C company, they are as close to competitor lists as possible. Uh-huh. And so there's not really a comp yet, although there are some that appear to be coming soon. So in that case, what we're suggesting is, well, let's play with that increase and see what happens. 
Or I would imagine, Rafi, you could, you don't have to do it across. Well, I guess you do have to do it across the board, right? Today with the internet, you can't experiment with it in some foreign spot and not have people find out. That's true. But here's, here's, I'm with you 100% of the way, but here's something you have to keep in mind. Pricing is very personal and people often don't like, people don't like a gun point, point in their head saying, take it or leave it. So I get you about the high price and you can justify that price. But if I'm looking at a bill and all of a sudden it's going up by 50%, I'm like, wow, that's gone up by, by a lot. So I think that if I were going to have such a leap, the communication of the customers is like, look, you've been great and getting a great deal. They haven't thought about this clearly. Here are all the next best alternatives. We're going to grandfather you and slowly move you up, or else we're going to offer good, better, best options, and we can keep you at the same price at a good version if you want more, better, best. Like a great example is, I don't know if you remember, but in 2011, Netflix jacked up the price of their streaming services. Do you remember that? Absolutely. <laughs> the, yeah. the, wor the whole world got mad. Yeah, you're right. And here's a great statistic. I looked it up just to be sure today. So between July and October of 2011, Netflix stock went from 291 to $75. People were really angry. This was the price increase uh, heard around the world. And, you know, Apple actually initially in their first iPhone did the same thing. They raised prices, but then they then they sort of made amends for it. But I often tell people if the CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings, had bothered to call me, we could have solved this in in uh, in sort of 15 minutes. And so what Netflix was in essence saying, it's like, gee, we're raising our price significantly, take it or not, leave it. And if I read Hastings, I would have had a communication with my customer said, look, our costs are going up. We just paid $40 million for a two-picture deal with uh, Chris Rock, you know, for his, for a comedy routine. And our costs are going up, but I made you a promise of low price, low prices. So whatever content you have, you're in, and that's at the bronze level. But if you want some of our better content, you're going to have to upgrade to our silver or gold, gold level. And what I found time and time again with good, better, best is people like having options. They don't want a gun pointing their head saying, take it or leave it. And what I found is when you offer people options, they're actually more receptive to upgrading to a higher price. So in the two cases that you're discussing about with, you know, inflation on the, on the, you know, here, and you're thinking about using this as an opportunity to, to capture value that you've been leaving on the table, I think to some of your existing customers, I think there has to be a pathway to the new value-based price. Rafi. Is it wrong for one man to love another man? <laughs> <laughs> you and I have been simpatico for many years. Yeah, we've been connected on the Psychic Friends Internet for a long time. <laughs> and so here's a question about that. So genius answer. Of course, we've seen it in practice. Allow me to pick a package as opposed to shove it at me. Got it. Amazing. And the other genius in what you said is you didn't say offer me 16 packages. Right. You said three, good, better, exactly. best, bronze, silver, gold. And what I've noticed, at least on the internet, and I don't have the data in front of me. I know there is data about this. The people who are real marketing tech um, uh, funnel geeks and stuff know this stuff way better than I do. But if you notice, if you go to, uh, you know, a, a major publisher or, or any sort of subscription service, you will often get 
those three packages. And interestingly enough, the way they present it to you is in tile form with, right. you know, the specifics of the offer and the price, of course. And, and of course, you know, the, the, the best option has more dots with more shit written next to those dots than the bronze option. Okay. But interestingly enough, they seem to put the middle option in the middle and sort of highlight that. Sometimes they'll even say, you know, most people purchase this one or something right. to that effect, right? And so there's a presentation of, well, you can have the low end, you can have the high end, or you can have what most people do. Right. So so maybe shed some light on that thinking. Right. So, Christopher, I'm going to push back on this practice. Okay, so I get it. The The middle, the middle is, is highlighted. And that what, what companies are really doing is tapping into the Goldilocks experience. Remember Goldilocks? She didn't want her porridge too cold or too warm, so they took she took the middle. And in uncertain times, people feel comfortable, uh, you know, choose the middle. Like when I go to the car wash, I look at the, the platinum package. It's like half of the stuff in there, I don't know what it is. It sounds good, okay, but I don't know what it is. So there's comfort in choosing the middle. But what I've really found that if you think about good, better, best correctly, and so this is my 2018 Harvard Business Review article, a lot of people are interested in best. And when we end up working with companies on best, get this, they'll start off with their current product, they'll have a lower priced version, a higher priced version. Generally speaking, best is 50 to 100% higher than their current price. And we are looking for 30% market share being in best. Now think about the profits on okay, that. Well, slow down. So, some of us are not very educated and drink a lot. Can you say that entire thing again <laughs> for me just so it registers? <laughs> I think the surprise of good, better, best and how you read, how companies should really be thinking about it is instead of focusing on the middle, really focus on best, your Rolls Royce product. And what I found is when you have a best, you can generally charge 50 to 100% more in price than your current product. And you should expect at least 30% of customers to be buying best. And when you do the math behind that, that's a significant pop in revenue and profit from best. Okay, so you just said something really fucking important. The advice you want us to hear is focus on best. Right. So give right. them three options. Right. But don't shove that middle option on the landing page or the home page or whatever. Focus on your best option. And 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 if I'm in a, a B2B sales situation or B2B Absolutely. marketing situation, let me just make sure I get this. I'm marketing best and I can come down off best to uh -huh. bronze if, if if needed. Yes? If need be. Yeah. And here's here's the thing. Best and I found this time and time again. Best is your Rolls Royce product. This is what you are so proud of. It's going to do everything for you. And so what I found is when people roll out best, you know, they're really excited about it. A lot of companies are very excited about it and they're happy to get in front of customers. And, um, you know, best can do a lot of things. So in the article, I, I talked about uh, Tequila Patron. They came out with a, with a tequila made out of the Tahona process, a unique process. And, you know, it sold very well, but what they found by having that premium option is that it increased the brand value of, of Patron. Because people are like, wow, they have this Rolls-Royce value, Rolls-Royce option. There's lots of great things about it. 
it enhances the way I think about the brand, even if I don't buy the highest the highest level. You're reminding me uh, as Acura was really coming up and gaining some real momentum. It's it's actually it's interesting how they failed in in more recent years. But in the beginning, when they launched, they were an extraordinary uh, new category. Nobody thought Japanese manufacturers were going to be able to create uh, Japanese luxury, and it was and it was distinctly different than. Uh, German or Italian luxury or, or American luxury. Anyway, um, so they're building momentum and it's getting better and better and better. And then they decide to make this big jump and they launch, was it, is it an NRX? No. So, if, if it wasn't that, it was something like that. It was their sort of uh, Ferrari or their like mega high-end Corvette. Uh, NSX, I think. Anyway, they, they were gorgeous and they, you know, they were around and then they disappeared and they've come back. And I, I don't know if they're around. I don't think they're around now. But to your point, there was an extraordinary, you could feel it in the market. There was an extraordinary halo effect that mm-hmm. they, they got were. because A, they were on TV doing this shit. And B, you walked into the dealer and the first thing you saw was this $250,000 race car that it looks insanely great. And uh-huh. And, you know, my friend and partner, <laughs> Nicholas Cole, likes to say, um, how do you sell a $30,000 watch? Put it next to a $300,000 watch. <laughs> right. Exactly. So this works. That's what you're telling us. This is what we should be doing. Absolutely. Every I think every company should be offering good, better, best options. I don't think you can give me one company that shouldn't. And, you know, as we discuss the, you know, what I found, what's what's beautiful about Good, Better, Best, it's sort of one of those terms that just hit. And it's like, who would have known, like, Hey Jude would have, would have like resonated with people or, um, or ants marching, uh, would, would, would resonate or, with, with, or uh, they sing Tom. sweet Caroline at football exactly. games in Europe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As well as Fenway Park in Boston. Right. Good, better, best is just a term that hit. But what I found is when you talk to customer to, to managers and customers about Good Red Rest, they instantly get it. And I've never seen something like that. And so I do these talks, I know like you do. And whenever I get to Good Better Best, I see the crowd sway. Because they immediately understand it. Then you're starting to give them statistics about best, and it gets people really excited. Because I think that anyone in a company, I think the frontline definitely knows. There are some people who really value my product or service, and they're willing to pay for Rolls Royce. And also, like all of us, we've seen some customers just sort of walk away saying, I'm interested, but the price is too high. And if we can give them a low-priced option, then that would uh, then that's, that's, that can get them in the door. Like a great example, uh, I think you're a music fan. Is that correct? So many years ago, the Rolling Stones were doing a tour, and they were setting very high prices and the tour just wasn't selling. And it was an embarrassment, quite frankly. And it was interesting what they did. They started saying, okay, we're going to be offering a pair of tickets for $170, which is low price, you know, given given what they're current. I think the prices were in the, you know, for a reasonably good seats were in the $400 to $500 range each. But here's the rub. These seats can be anywhere in the arena. You're going to come, you're going to pay your money up front, you're going to come, and as soon as you come in, we're going to hand you an envelope with your tickets, and that's it. 
Now, what was interesting about that strategy is that it targeted a different type of customer. So if I were going out on a date and I want to impress my date, I'm not going to do that. Okay. If I'm, go- if I'm taking a client out, I want to impress them with great seats, the Rolling Stones, I'm not going to do that. Or if I'm a devotee, I'm not going to do that. That version, that good version really picked off a different type of consumer. And uh, so good can also pick off, add a new segment of customers who you wouldn't have otherwise had in the building. The, the, there's many reasons I love why you, uh, I love you telling that story, Ravi, because the other thing that I hear, so A, we've now done what in our world we'd say, we've now done what the most legendary category designers do, which is they're always finding ways to expand the category potential. Uh-huh. And so when I hear you share this story, what I'm hearing is that there's a, cr- a creative category uh, sort of uh, genius at play here, which is we don't want to embarrass ourselves with super low tickets because we're the stones. Right. But we got to fill the place. We got to put butts in seats. So, and we don't want to, I'm assuming you tell me if this is the way I should be thinking. We don't want to devalue the $500, $800 seats. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the worst case scenario because when you offer a good, you want to make sure people would have paid prime prices aren't going to downgrade. Sorry right. for the interruption. Go yeah. interrupt me all day long. You're yeah. the sensei. Uh, I, I love this conversation. And so, but there's a level of, of creativity and a level of, and I'm sure you know, they wouldn't use these words, of course, but, but intuitively an understanding that, wait, wait a minute, no, we'll protect our brand and reputation. Uh, we'll sell these fucking seats uh, we w- we won't get hammered on price, and, and we'll create a new experience, and we'll tap into a new audience, aka exactly. expand the category potential. And now we exactly. have we do what we're supposed to be doing, which is if you want to sell records, there's got to be fans. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And remember, on the high end, not only are you gain devotees. So if you offer a best version, you are getting new customers. So, for instance, Six Flags, they're offering a lot of different... Op- I mean, when I was a kid, when you and I were kids, you paid your money, you went to an amusement park, you stood in line like everyone else. Now Six Flags is offering you options. You pay money to get in, but you can buy these fast passes to skip the line. And there's one pass that will skip the line as, as much as 90%. It'll save you on wait time. You can even ride the same ride twice. And, and so these types of higher-end options are getting people in the door who you wouldn't have otherwise gotten. Or uh, my greatest example on Good, Better, Best is a chef who offers early bird, regular, and chef's table. So the early bird are getting perhaps newly wed, new new people are celebrating an early wedding and they get a great meal if they're there by 6.15. And sort of chef's table are attracting a different type of crowd who sort of value, you know, trying the chef's latest creations and getting a picture for Instagram with the chef. So you're getting different types of, you're, you're broadening your customer base. Yes, and it's interesting. What you just described there is the uh, model that we are sharing with the creator community, which is essentially uh, there's a ladder. And, and as you go up the ladder, you go from products to more experiences. 
I think is probably the way uh, Joe Pine would describe it. <clears throat> and if you're the creator, the, well, here's an example. Okay. When former President Trump launched his NFTs, one of the parts of what he promoted was the fact that if you buy these NFTs, you can enter a contest right. for a whole bunch of prizes. And there were memorabilia and there was this and there was that. And as you went further up, there was a Zoom call with him. And then as you went further up, there was a dinner with him. And okay. so it, it was that sort of very classic, as you go up the value ladder, and in the case of a creator, or in this case, a, pr a president, uh, the, the closer you get to a one-on-one -on -one experience, kind of the more value uh -huh. you can uh, deliver. And in this case, it was in the form of a contest, but, but creators can charge in that sort of similar way. No, I mean, that's a great example. I'll give you, uh, let me give you a, a sort of similar example. So, Christopher, I'm not sort of the most interested in arts, even though Kathy is an art history professor. Okay, so it's weird mix. And so- You guys must be perfect together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were in Paris a couple of years ago, and she went to all the museums, and I was going to concerts at night. But um, anyway, I interviewed the, the Metropolitan By the way, Museum for the record, I, I'm hanging out with you, <laughs> even though I'm sure she's way more attractive than I find you. But uh, that's if you if you want to go you and see. I will mind, you, will, you and I will mind meld. Exactly. Um, so so I interviewed a senior vice president at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And he's like, oh, we have all these different uh, packages, these memberships. And this was what a rube I was. I was just like, well, I don't really understand. At that time, it was free to get to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Why wouldn't I buy any of these packages? And he said exactly what you said. He goes, people value the relationship. And he goes, so in our most basic package, you're in communication, but actually at our highest package, you know, you get a tea uh, with, with the museum director. And that was a great learning I had. And it's something that you'd be surprised how often I'm approached by nonprofits and they're interested in sort of having good, better, best. And really, it's the relationship that distinguishes many of these packages. You know, it's it's funny that you say that because um, uh, when I first started to make money, uh, you know, I've always tried to be as charitable as possible. When I was a kid, if I could afford, you know, uh, two drinks and a shitty tip at the end of the night uh, or one drink and a good tip, I did the one drink and a good tip. Anyway, when I first started to make money, uh, I really felt like, okay, um, I need to start writing some checks here. And um, fell in love very quickly with uh, Doctors Without Borders, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières. Um, and for all the ho hopefully obvious reasons. Anyway, um, and so started contributing. I wasn't a giant one. I mean, there were people giving them, you know, million dollar plus years of checks. So I, I wasn't anywhere near in that league, but, you know, reasonable and consistent and, and caring. And so they did just that. So for example, uh, Robin Williams and his wife, Marsha at the time were big supporters, unbeknownst to me. And we get an invitation from them to go to a super ding dong restaurant in San Francisco with 60 other people, or uh, I mean, a, a, a relatively small number given what they could have done at the invitation of the Williams. 
and the executive director is going to be there and they're going to have a gal there that just got back from somewhere and is going to give us a report from the front line and, and you know, this and that and the other. And then Robin's going to tell some stories and we're going to have some drinks and have a great old time. And that's exactly what happened. And so for a nonprofit, when they have people who are well-known in one domain or another can use that as a way to further. I mean, it was, it was an incredible experience for me as a, as a donor. One, I didn't feel like I deserved. And it was a great marketing lesson. Right. Yeah. And, but even if you don't have a Robin Williams in your, in your uh, you know, who, who, who's willing to do a dinner like that, I found that, pe- especially in, in, in making donations, people do value being hired, sort of access to people who are higher up. So because they share the same passion and they want to have that type of discussion. So relationships are very important in any type of good, better, best. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. My um, my brother from another mother, Al Ramadan, co-author of Play Bigger, big, big sexy Ital- uh, Italian, no, big sexy uh, Aussie. Um, right. My wife's Italian. Uh, anyway, he's the chairman of a nonprofit here in Santa Cruz called the Save the Waves Foundation. And they are masters at this. Uh-huh. And they'll bring in celebrity surfers. They'll bring in local politicians, uh, community leaders, and they'll bring in scientists, ocean biology experts, you know, et cetera, environmental, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you care about the ocean, if you care about the environment, if you care about surfing and da, 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 like they put on a cornucopia of like intellectual information and Discourse, education yeah. that, that is that is fascinating to people who might give a shit about that. And if you give a shit about that, uh, there's a chance you might write them a check. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I wanted to circle back. Um, there's been a couple times um, in the discussion where something has popped in my brain. Uh, and you just did it with the Six Flags example. So that connects to category design. So again, stay with me. I'm going to take you on a bit of a magical mystery tour, but I promise I'm trying to go somewhere. So one of the things we say in category design is today's solutions are tomorrow's problems. And of course, fundamentally, a new category is either identifying a new problem or reimagining an old problem in a a radically differentiated way. Um, So today's solutions are tomorrow's problems. So, uh, we create an amusement park. It's radically successful. We want to extract all the revenue and margin we can. We let in a ton of people. By letting in a ton of people, there's now an hour and a half long wait to get on the Superfly ding dong. I don't know what. Oh, so today's solution is I want to go somewhere for an entertaining day with my family. Becomes tomorrow's problem. I don't want to stand in line all fucking day. I want to get on the rides. Right. Creates a new category. premium service. And in this case, it's a problem that their original solution created, and yet they get to charge extra to solve the problem they created. That's true. That's true. That's true. Now, you ready for another one? Okay. I had this aha. So, um, my wife, Carrie, uh, fairly recently got a, an Apple iWatch. There's a few uh-huh. reasons she wanted to try it, but so she got it. Um, and she now loves it. She wasn't sure she was going to love it, but she wanted to try it. And she absolutely loves it. And she'll tell you all about why and blah, 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 blah. But when you say to her, okay, baby, what's the, you know, 
when you net it out, what's the thing, what's the number one thing you like about your iWatch? And she says, I don't have to carry my iPhone. Interesting. Interesting. And so, and you just, and, and as a category designer, I hear that and, I, and my, my head is exploding because I'm like, Apple created a problem right. called, how do I have every piece of technology in the world in my pocket? <laughs> it wasn't a problem right. we were worried about. And they solved it. Insanely great. I mean, most important product. You, My doctor uh, will tell you the most important medical device she has is her iPhone. Those words. Anyway. Wow. Um, so one of the most extraordinary new categories of technology that changes fucking everything and is an incredible solution to a zillion problems that we couldn't have even imagined when Steve and the folks uh, l launched the first one, right? That's what this thing is. It's the greatest fucking thing ever. And it now creates a problem called, I have to carry it. Which the watch, and I don't know, do you know how much the watches cost? I think the SEs are in what, in the, they start off in the threes or fours? Yeah, so you buy a plus or minus thousand dollar phone, right? Right, right. <laughs> and it creates a problem called, I don't want to carry it with me all the time, to which they give you an answer that's 400 bucks, 300 bucks. Well, I think I think that's great. It's, I should I should mention that I'm a big fan of Apple and own the stock. So uh, so, but I would agree, and especially like when I'm on the road and I'm dealing with clients, you know, I don't want to be you know pulling out my iPhone out of my uh, you know briefcase or this that. And the watch is very helpful. But let me tell you what the game changer is going to be is that they are reportedly going to have a glucose meter on there to test your blood glucose. And remember, Americans in in America. Over 10% of people have diabetes, okay? We all know how many people have, have pre-diabetes, but that's 70 percent of Americans are, um, uh, I'm trying to remember what the te politically correct terms are, <laughs> okay. fat or obese, whatever the <laughs> right. polite way of saying that is. And I say that as a guy who's not exactly svelte, so... <laughs> So this is going to be a game changer if you can get your blood glucose on on the uh, on the watch, which you know. So, I think I think that your wife Carrie is um, ahead of the pack and really understands how much value there is loaded into that watch. But for me, the aha as a category designer is yeah, they created uh, a problem. You can create a problem, then a solution, which is exactly what they did to create the smartphone iWatch which then creates tomorrow's problem, which people will pay you to solve the problem you created, which is exactly the same thing that Six, Six Flags and Disney are doing. And it's, exactly. it's just a fascinating uh, unlock. So can I tell you an, uh, a sort of you know, tangential story, which you might find interesting? Of course, of course, of like, course. <laughs> so do you, do you eat uh, ribs, barbecue ribs? Yes, I do. You trying to talk? <laughs> you trying to talk sweet to me again? <laughs> so, like you, I I I try to be I befriend people who I think make good great products and always have suggestions. So, this friend of mine was running uh, a sort of rib shack in East Boston, and at that time, this was a long time ago. I I think Fortune magazine ended up writing a piece on it, but his ribs were like seventeen ninety nine for a dinner for two. And then, remember, this is a long time ago. And I kept saying, no, Pete, 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 you got to offer a best version. And he goes, what's the best version? I'm like, baby back ribs. 
And then he gives me a lecture about how baby back ribs aren't really better than regular ribs. But much like you said earlier, value is in the mind of the consumer and consumers often per- perceive um, baby back ribs to be better. So it was fascinating. You know, we, it was this ongoing, you know, jokingly battle. And one day I walk into this place and he's out front with a little smoker and he's smoking all these baby back ribs. And he goes, ah, I took your advice. He goes, I'm just going to try a case it. Let's see. So, you know, we went in and we were sitting at a table. We we're just jawboning and, you know, having a good time. I said, well, what are you charging for these ribs? And he goes, well, $17.99 for the regular ribs. And he goes, but $25 for the, uh, for the uh, full rack of baby bags. And I started laughing. I'm like, you're trying to rig this contest because those prices at the time were probably the most expensive baby back ribs in America. And, you know, so we're sitting at this table and three out of four people order half rack of the baby back dinner for $18. And the guy looks at me, he goes, I'm going to make so much money off of this strategy. And it became a big seller for him. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah, brother. Yeah. I'll, 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 I got a quick side story for you. So sure. Pandemic butcher at Whole Foods near us gets laid off. Uh-huh. Young guy, great guy, incredible guy. Um, opens his own butcher shop. Beautiful. Perfect. Incredible. Has, has two or three guys, professionals gentlemen just and the product is fucking insane it everything is perfect it's like and and the meatloaf i mean everything is insane so um so one day carrie comes home and uh, the guy's name is tim and she says oh uh, tim's selling a package and i forget how much money it was but it was you know so much money for such i forget what the deal was but it was a you know you you give me money now, and I give you discount, right? A sort of uh-huh. a st- standard cash flow move, particularly for a small business. But whatever the give to get was, I said, I said, what is it? And she explained it to me. And I, I, again, I forget the details; they don't matter. But it was radically undervalued, uh-huh. even though we were doing the cash flow deal up front. So so I call him, nice. and I say, hey Tim. It's Christopher, you know, Carrie's husband. You just sold her this deal, right? And I'm like, what are you fucking doing? (laughs) Well, he thinks I'm mad at him for ripping us off. Right. And he starts apologizing. He's like, oh, well, you know, because he's a really great guy and he's a smart businessman. I'm like, no, no, Tim, Tim, that's not what I'm saying. And I'm not that donkey that would call you. No, that's not a good, I'm saying the opposite. You should double the price of that fucking thing. Don't sell this to anybody else at this price. (laughs) And one last tangential story to that. So I hang out at a tavern in Brookline, Massachusetts. And for a long while, a pint of beer, whether it was uh, Papsu Riven or Guinness, was $4. I said to the owner, I'm like, you know, what's the deal on this? They're very differentiated products. How come you aren't charging different prices? He's like, Rafi, he goes, we don't want to deal with quarters and all this stuff and everything. I'm like, okay, let's figure out how much money you're leaving on the table. And so we sort of did this back of the envelope calculation and we figured that he was leaving roughly $35,000. This was, you know, a few years ago in profits on the table by not having different prices. 
The next time I came in and I ordered a beer, I noticed it was four seventy five, and so, so my point is, and you know, getting tagging on what you said, is that pricing is sort of this dark horse strategy that oftentimes not a lot of serious thought is put into it, and this is what that opportunity is. These people work so hard. Your friend Tim, right? Uh, spend so much money to have that shop, have three or four butchers, have best quality. And then when it came down, he's creating so much value. But when it came down to capturing that value, it could, he could have done better. Yeah. Particularly for that kind of a deal. Yes. Right. Now there's, there's two other things I'd love to touch on if we could. Sure. Um, you talked earlier, Rafi, about, um, uh, customer perceptions, consumer perceptions, so the baby back ribs, right? Well, in the, the category design business in a very real way is about intentionally creating new perceptions about problems, solutions, uh, technologies, uh, products and services, et cetera. And so in that regard, when, when we're proposing that this is a breakthrough and this is a new category, by definition, there aren't historical comps, right? There's no best alternative. There's the thing we used to do and there's this idea, right? Right. Um, and so how do we create perception of value for a thing that we say is new and we are intentionally not trying to compare it to something else because we want it to be as distinct, distinguished, different in the consumer's mind as possible? So I think that this is an interesting discussion, and I hear what you're saying, but for value, people have to lock onto an anchor to think this is my alternative and this is my price. So you're trying to throw a price out there, and I'm just struggling to think, well, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And so I hear what you're saying, but my off-the-cuff first response would be, would would be to say, look, you do the uh, the old way of thinking, the bad way of thinking is this alternative. We offer here are the five key bullet points that makes it the new way of thinking. And when you think about these five bullet points of value, this is what justifies the price. So maybe it's maybe a simple example that I love. One of my favorite category design uh, examples ever. Yeti coolers. OK, great. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Nobody ever thought to your point. Actually, fuck, I'd never thought of it to this second. Hey, if they had hired you, Yeti wouldn't exist because you would have told them to go build their best option. That's what Yeti did, right? There was no Rolls Royce of coolers. That's true. And for a bunch of reasons, they wanted to go out for long. They wanted, I think they wanted to be able to stand up on it. You know, they wanted to be able to, you know, they wanted a rough and tumble thing that really fucking worked. That was beyond what they uh, uh, could find. So they created it. And I don't remember the exact prices, but like I think a decent Coleman is 50, 80 bucks. Right. And a comparable Yeti is several hundred. Yeah. In the ballpark. I don't know exactly, but, and now they have backpacks and bags and that shit is insane too. Cups. Yeah. Yeah. All of it. Right. Yeah. How do those guys create a space that you could take a product that sells for 79 bucks and sell it for 300 bucks that, right. you know, on its face could look the same? Right. And so I would, I, I think the communication, I will say you should be able to look a customer straight in the eye and articulate your value. 
and to say, look, what's out there today, you can't use for what you're needing, okay, for what you want. You want to, you can't be tripped. You want uh, uh, extended, uh, extended uh, cooling and everything. So let's, it, so what's out there today at $80, it's not even getting you what you need, but let's start at $80. How much more would you pay for the opportunity to have the ice last for 24 hours or this durability? And that's when you start, you're pitching them off of a base price and trying to understand what they would pay for that. That's how I would do it. Holy fuck, that was amazing. You said, um, please correct me if I didn't get it right, what's out there can't get you what you need. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Right. The world has to agree with that statement. And when the world agrees with that statement, you've designed a new category. Exactly. And exactly. fucking hey, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> you said lock onto an anchor. Right. One of the arguments we make in category design is learning from Daniel, is it Kahneman? Kahneman? Kahneman, yeah. Uh, thinking fast and slow is the first person and or company in the business context that introduces you to a new idea, a new thing, is your anchor. Yeah, I could see that. Right. So the first time the Sushi Rito company says to you, Sushi Rito, it's a sushi burrito and it solves the problem called sushi on the go. The world's first sushi Rito. Well, now you're anchored. The next time you hear that, you're going to wait a minute. That's what they said. So let me riff on that for a little. And we were talking about the next best alternative, you know, the Coleman coolers. One of the things when you offer good people, good, better, best options is that it reframes how people think about pricing. And what they often do is they think about, they'll think about, well, what's the difference between good and better and better and best? And they'll say, oh, well, the price difference is enough. I'll take better or best. A great, great example is I was dealing with a nonprofit. And even before I gave them the price for my consulting, they were bellyaching about price, right? I was like, boy, this is going nowhere. And I sent them a proposal for good, better, best. Uh, for uh, to work with them, and they took best, and I couldn't believe it. And I later asked the the head of this uh, the head of this department, "You stopped me. Why would you have taken best?" And she goes, "You know, we looked at the value between good and better, and better and best, and we thought we got the best deal by buying best." So I thought it was really interesting how they reframed the the pricing uh, decision from just look at, looking at the absolute price to look at the relative prices between each one of the options. It's so interesting you say that. So the person who frames the problem wins. Right. And so one of the things, I don't know if they still do, but in the good old days, uh, one of the things I got taught and then I uh, taught afterwards was the sales paradigm of, or the, the sales technique of, when dealing with customer objections, particularly around money, it is wise to know the phrase, uh, well, ma'am, or Susan, are we having a value conversation or a price conversation? Well, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And that's how good, better, best clearly reframes this. 
into a value conversation. Yeah. And people understand who might not have paid. If you told them the price of your Rolls Royce version, you know, it just told them they'd be like, that's crazy. But then when they see the options and they understand the value between the options, they can rationalize best or the Rolls Royce version much easier. Now, maybe there's a tie here to the other thing I wanted to ask you about, which is discounts. Okay. Good, better, best allows you to pre-build the discount uh-huh. by taking away value. So right. to go back to my my uh, dear buddy, uh, um, Jay Larson, the give to get changes, uh-huh. but we give you that option. Right. You know, if you, if you go in to buy most high-end vehicles that are in, you know, serious demand and you say, well, I don't want to pay X. I want to pay X minus. They say, okay, well, you know, get the shittier engine or whatever. Like we get, you go down in package, right? Right. We are lowering our price. Yeah. And then go fuck yourself. So uh, that's a very interesting thing because you've pre-built it. Now on discounts, how should I think about discounts, Rafi? Right. So, I think that people worry about, um, you know, saying a low price too much. And let me give you an example. So I had this professor in upstate New York, and he's a very, economists are very thrifty people. And he went to a, uh, he went to a liquor store and right above the cash register was this, was this sign that said, that said, ask me about a discount. And so the professor asked, he's like, well, what about this discount? The guy's like, oh, all you have to do is fill out this form. You'll get a card. And you get 5% off all purchases and 10% off cases. And the professor said, well, why wouldn't, why would everyone do this? And the guy had a prophetic response. And his response was, because not everyone cares about price. And that's really important to understand. A lot of your customers are fine with your price. So offering a discount is really a way to pick off people who are who who are like i'm interested but the price is too high the price is too high so a standard way of doing it is to offer hurdles people who are you don't want to give the discount away to everyone so make them jump over a hurdle to get the discount so someone who uh who takes the time to uh fill out a rebate send it in wait for the rebate uh a visa card to come in and spend it within six months they're telling you price is really important to me and what you want to do is find ways to pick these people off without cannibalizing your product and giving the discount away to everyone. And so that's how I view discounts. I'm not a huge fan about discounts. There are certain times maybe if everyone is discounting on Black Friday and you want to stay in the game, you could do that. But if you're sort of a premium product, you know, uh, discounts, you know, I'd look at a way to strategically uh, offer uh, a lower price to people who really want it or need it. Fascinating. Let me bounce this one quickly off you. We at Category Pirates, a while back now, but we wrote a mini book uh, newsletter on this. And the position, sort of the aha that we had, Rafi, was in the United States, and I think in certain parts of Europe, we ran a a venture capital funded, roughly decade-long mass experiment on discounting and it appears to have completely failed and that experiment's called groupon <laughs> but nobody and I, I don't mean that to be shitty i really don't that they tried to do something very innovative it might have worked I, I don't fault them at all actually but what what happened was 
we were a small business, pizza shop, laundromat, whatever the fuck it was, right? A lot of hair, nail type, like yoga, you name it, right? Lots of small businesses, little restaurants, pop up. They offer the fucking group on a bazillion people show up and that's it. Right. They don't get any new customers. Right. So it turned out that it, they would crash their businesses because of volume around this thing. And the quote unquote give to get, that is to say the people who actually became customers uh, was very minimal. And mm-hmm. so what it showed, the, the, the dot we connected, and if you disagree, by all means, uh, was this was a science experiment spread over many years and many categories of companies and services and da, 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 da. And it, this is what it showed. Well, I, I think the two insights that I got from Groupon is, A, when you offer a big discount, you completely devalue yourself. Okay, so I just went there yesterday and they had a buy one, get one free. Am I really going to come back and pay full price? And the second thing with the with 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 coupons is what I would have done is I would have had some restrictions to not make it like the like the the true uh, product. So if it were if it were a uh, a restaurant, I'd say only good on two Mondays and Tuesdays. Okay, and you want them to incentivize to get them in, but you don't want to devalue yourself. And this is one of the the biggest things with pricing. And, you know, going back to your friends, as we started off this, once you set a low price, you do devalue yourself. And it takes a lot to change the the value perception in a customer's mind. Ravi, clearly I could talk to you about this shit for a very long time, um, but I want to be respectful of your time. Um, Is there anything else um, that you would like to touch on? I think that one of the things that that I I did want to discuss was sort of my signature in pricing. So most people think about price as a two-lever strategy, raise or lower. So oftentimes, if I talk to a general manager, they're like, what are we going to do, raise prices or lower prices? And I think the signature that I have and the, the robustness that I've added to the, to the thinking of pricing is offering customers choice. So going back to the Netflix uh, example, and that's come out of two articles, the 2018 Harvard Business Review article on Good, Better, Best. We've spent a lot of time on that. And also the new article, which happens to be out in the January, February 2023 uh, HBR magazine, which is called Expand Your Pricing Paradigm. And I think that, 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 that companies should offer different pricing strategies to activate dormant customers. So like a great example is, is um, you know, NetJets. They came out and they're like, oh, we're only interval ownership. They did really well. Then they started offering leasing. And they started offering uh, hourly cards. And my point is, is that no matter what type of um, pricing strategy you have, you often often can add another pricing strategy. To It doesn't have to be a different, it, the price doesn't have to be lower. It's just a different pricing strategy to meet the needs of different customers. Like great example is magazines are The Economist. The Economist offers yearly subscriptions. They also offer monthly subscriptions. And that new pricing strategy of monthly, you know, you know, this is doing very well for publications to offer that. So, okay, great. Let's maybe go here. So, um, Nicholas Cole, we call, uh, we all call him Cole. He has a thesis that says in the content business and maybe true for others, maybe you'll tell me that it's all about quote unquote bundling and unbundling. Mm-hmm. 
And so the model we have come to with category pirates, some of it very intentionally and some of it a little accidentally, like a lot of things, is the following. There's the newsletter. And if you want to subscribe to it annually, you can do that. You can also do it monthly. Uh And then the newsletters get repackaged and sold individually on Amazon. So it's 20 bucks a month or 200 bucks a year, or it's eight bucks for the Kindle version on Amazon. And then we bundle a bunch of them together. And then that's a book, which you can buy as an analog book or a digital book. So if you want the whole enchilada, buy the whole enchilada. If you want to buy uh, monthly for a while and fuck off, great. If you want to, et cetera. So you understand the point, right? And so um, we don't look at it as as, uh, um, necessarily increasing or decreasing the value. We think they're all priced in a way that hopefully demonstrates or at least speaks to that there might be some value here, but we've unbundled it and bundled it. So if you want to pick and choose how you do it, then fucking hey, have at it. I think that's perfect. And let me sort of succinct how I would view what you just said is that you have customers who have different needs and you're offering a la carte as well as bundled options to meet their needs. And if you didn't have one of these options, you would be missing out on a uh, on a certain type of customer type. I love the way you just said that. <laughs> I mean, think about a, gar- a parking garage. So you have hourly, you have daily, you have monthly commuters. In Boston, downtown, they even have something called a residential option where you can come in after five, but you have to be out by nine. You can, you can stay on the weekends. Each of these different price, it's not the price, it's the pricing strategy. Each one of these pricing strategies, I say, activates a dormant customer. I'm interested. You just don't have this pricing strategy for me. And once you roll that out, like I, I love the notion of these residential pricing uh, packages where, you know, uh, fine, we're busy during the day with people coming downtown. But if you live downtown, you can come and park after five. You have to be out by 9 a.m. And yeah, we'll give you the weekends and we have a price for that. And it works for both sides. Well, if it's I'm interesting. This is under discussed, I think. But a material design point for how the cloud takes off as a mega category, really driven primarily from Salesforce, Mark Benioff, is a pricing strategy. So yes, there's a technology, and we talk about that, but they go from don't buy it, rent it. I mean, that's Uh the simplest way to say it. Exactly, yeah. So my, my point is pricing can be category designing in of itself and or a material part of a new category design. Yeah. Because part of, and people don't talk about this, and I'm the furthest thing from an accounting geek, but when you take it from a CapEx and you make it OpEx, you know, there's some people who really want that. I agree. And let me let me add one last last point to our discussion. Here's something that I really want to leave with people is the notion of how how powerful pricing is. And you brought up Salesforce. So oftentimes I'll go to a company and I'll, I'll say, if you can raise your price by just 1% and demand remains constant, okay, big assumption, what would that do to your bottom line? Okay. So McKinsey did a study in 2010 of the global 1200 and they found that on average for the global 1200, 
if a 1% increase in, if they could increase the price by just 1%, their operating profits would go up by 8.7%. Not bad. Okay. But you brought up Salesforce. And so I actually chair pick, pick some services. Walmart, 1%, I call it the 1% windfall. What's the windfall from 1%? Walmart is 19%. McKesson, 129%. Salesforce is 45%. So if they could raise their price by just 1%, that would lead to a 45% increase in their operating profits. Huge. Who can't do 1%? But let me get to the, be- the best point. Not only will that increase your operating profit, but it will increase the value of your company. Okay, because like I work with a lot of private equity firms, and they say the value. They sometimes they'll say the value of a company is seven point five times its operating profits. So all of a sudden you multiply that. But I did an interesting calculation, and this calculation is so mind blowing. I actually went over it like five times to make sure I got it correct. If Disney, this is based on FY twenty one data, if they could increase their price by just one percent it would lead to a 26.3% increase in operating profits. But let's look at the ball. What would that happen to the market cap? Market cap is typically your price to earnings ratio times your um, your net profit. So I calculated that it may, if Disney increases its price by just 1%, it has a PE ratio of 48.1.5%, a 48.15, a 1% increase in price would lead to a ballpark $32.5 billion increase in its market cap. And here's the thing. This isn't a consultant making up numbers. These are straight from their 10Ks and looking at what their PE ratios are. And you can do this statistic for any company. And I think that this type of 1% uh, you know, calculation really illustrates why this is such an important uh, uh, really, uh, such an important strategy. And the beauty of this is many times, since people haven't done pricing strategy right, there's a lot of opportunity. And these are things that can really be implemented close to immediately. Not in the, not in long, I'm not saying invest millions of dollars and hopefully in three years. I'm saying, you know, many of these things can be implicated uh, next week. And I'll give you one last example. So I gave a talk, I do a lot of talks like you, I gave a talk to a Fortune 100 company, and at the end, the CEO stood up. He was really happy. He's like, Rafi, he goes, we have 40,000 people in this company, and we can tell you cost to the penny. He goes, we don't have one person in this company that's focused on price. I'm not kidding you. This is the opportunity for companies. Wow. You're incredible. Save the best for the last. You must be you must be the most in-demand dude around right now. <laughs> Holy <laughs> There's fuck. a lot of interest in price. Especially so. now. I mean, not that you you wouldn't want one percent always, but uh right. you know, listen, we're in choppy water and different people have different opinions and uh I do not possess uh a crystal ball, so who the who the fuck knows? Um but it feels like we might be in for a little while here. So very powerful. And the connections yeah. between price, creating the perception of value, anchoring, and and for me, all connected with uh, how all that plays into designing categories and all the way back to what's the next best alternative. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very serious body of work, sir. Yeah. Thank you. Are you going to do a new book? Well, you know something? There is a, there's a pitch going out uh, sort of based on a couple different articles. 
And so we'll see. I mean, this is um, sort of, that would be a book of love, basically, because I have so many great stories like we've talked about today about how simple changes can really uh, sort of, you know, um, lead to just big profits and big opportunities for companies. Um, one how of my much favorites, podcasting uh, are you doing? You, you are the third, the fourth podcast I've ever done. I just, I've dealt with HBR. I've done their idea cast yeah. and, and you, but I do want to let you know one, one of my favorite stories, you, Christopher, you might love this. So, so I interviewed this guy who he has a franchise of Kentucky fried chicken, a Kentucky fried chicken franchise in Canada. And he's the only franchise that has an all-you-can-eat buffet in Canada. And it is so, the notion of all-you-can-eat is so powerful. People come from three to four hours just for this. And then Kentucky Fried Chicken was actually going to uh, cancel it, say you can't do that anymore. And, you know, some very senior officials in the Canadian government got involved saying, saying, uh, saying no, you can't do this. But what was so fascinating to me is just the pricing strategy generated so much interest because it tapped into what consumers wanted. It is fascinating and and, um, such a powerful lever. Rafi, thank you so much. Oh, the other thing, you should think about doing your own podcast. Okay. No, really. Yeah. No, and even if you only wanted, like, I... You don't have to commit to doing it forever like I seem to have. <laughs> uh, although, you know, never say never. But um, uh, but for me, it's a labor of love. So it's not. Anyway, uh, but if you said, hey, listen, I just want to do six episodes. Right. I want to take six big ideas and I want to share them with people. And ta-da. Um, yeah. And you could turn that into a course and, and, and. So there's sort of, you know, in the digital creator space, there's a set of things you can you could now th- uh, think about doing anyway, vis-a-vis a podcast, you know, you could do three episodes. Uh, you don't, you can commit to a piece of work and that's it. It doesn't, you don't necessarily have to commit to a series. I see. No, that's a good idea. I mean, look, it's been great. I mean, we've known each other for many years and, uh, I mean, it's really enjoyable spending the time with you and, you know, three of us, Eddie, you know, we all have to get together and, um, I sure, I think it would be a very, uh, yeah, we should have a jam dinner. session. Yeah, let's yeah, that's do a that. great idea. That's a great let's idea. Do that. Yeah, jam no, session. seriously. Yeah, that would be really. Yeah, I think we all could riff on each other very well. Yeah. No, let's yeah. do that. So I'm, de- okay. I'm absolutely serious. Okay. All right, Rafi. Thank you, brother. We'll talk soon. Well, there he is, my buddy, uh, the Doctor Rafi Mohammed. His latest HBR article is out. It's called "Expand Your Pricing Paradigm." There's a click through to it in the show notes of this episode. And uh, don't forget his book, The Art of Pricing, New Edition, How to Find the Hidden Profits to Grow Your Business. Uh, And you can find all of that in our show notes. And if you want to go to Rafi and visit him on the interweb, his website is called pricingforprofit.com. That's pricingforprofit.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with one of your friends? You know, like I know, that word of mouth, or WAM, is the most powerful form of marketing. It was, is, and always will be. And we appreciate your social media shares and you telling people they need to uh, follow and subscribe to this podcast. All right. We would like to thank, of course, you. Thank you so much for your time and attention. It means the world to me and all of us here. 
Uh, I want to remind you that our friends at Clary are the leader in revenue collaboration and governance. CEOs have a hard time answering the most important question in business, which is, are we going to meet, beat, or miss on revenue? Visit Clary, C-L-A-R-I dot com today and learn how to get your whole company collaborating and governing your revenue process. Clary dot com. And my friends at Malibu Milk dot com are the whole plant flax milk made by a mom. So if you want to try an alternative milk, flax is an incredible, incredible way to go because flax is good for the environment and good for your body. Check out Malibu Milk with a Y dot com. That's Malibu Milk with a Y dot com. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided just solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it contains content known to the state of California to cause a radically different thinking. All rights are disturbed, and uh, all cod, all all podcasts. <laughs> if you're going to have a podcast, you got to learn how to talk. All Oddcast episodes do contain nuts. We are produced and edited by the goat, Jason DeFilippo. Uh, check him out. He's got a hot new podcast studio in the Los Angeles area. Check out Jason.FYI. Jamie J and Sarah Knox do our technical execution and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon, the Bobus Brothers, RJ and EX do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. Uh, we are recorded in Dolby ADHD technology on Squadcast.fm. Eddie Van Halen was right. Listen to Katie Lang. And Warren Buffett said, price is what you pay. Value is what you get. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Andrew Tate. Sorry, Tate. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Stay legendary. Stay, stay, stay safe until we're together again. Follow your different.